Supercharge your deal building experience with Accelerate My Deal when connected across AutoTrader and KBB.com listings and Dealer.com websites. It helps deliver predictive and personalized experiences for you and your consumers. Book your NADA demo today. Hello and welcome to the Auto Remarketing Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Overby, Senior Editor of Auto Remarketing. And uh, joining me today is Scott Painter, who is the founder and CEO of Autonomy, which is an automotive subscription platform that, that focuses on the electrical electric vehicle space. And Scott is a, a longtime entrepreneur in the automotive technology space and a, a frequent guest on our shows and at conferences uh, at Cherokee Media Group. But, but Scott, You've got such a, a keen understanding of the retail auto industry from, from your experience in that, but also the investment and, and financial metrics behind it. So always great to talk with you and, and have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Joe, thanks for having me. Good to see you again. Good to see you. Well, it, it's been a busy fall for, for autonomy. I mean, kind of start going back to the acquisition of EV mobility in September and then the launch of several partnerships since then. But wanted to start at the top here with the recent work you guys announced with Deloitte. High level, you know, the, the point I, I think is to help make EVs more accessible and affordable, but how is autonomy and, and Deloitte kind of going about that working together? Sure. Well, you know, I think that great companies, great entrepreneurs solve a particular problem. And really what we set out to do with autonomy was originally just make buying and owning a car easier. And in the on the way to market, Tesla hit a trillion dollar market cap. And I think we really hit a tipping point in terms of consumer willingness to try an EV. And certainly the auto industry, I think, tipped towards going all in on electric. We also saw there's a lot of political will in terms of legislative and regulatory, tons of financial support that is now being thrown behind electric vehicles. So I think my partners and I really took the point of view that electric vehicles was going to become the dominant mode of transportation and that we're all going to be driving electric cars. So we really began to focus on EVs. Oddly, Deloitte really is focused mostly on the fact that a subscription contract, which is nothing more than an open-ended lease, is really going to be the contract of the future. And I think Deloitte has focused on the right set of problems. You know, as somebody who's been focusing on trying to make buying and owning a car easier, I've been using technology as my prime thrust. And the whole business that we built here at Autonomy sits on top of a tech stack that is really the culmination of not just my experience, but my partner, George Bauer, who was the founding CEO at Mercedes Credit, BMW Financial Services, was at Tesla Financial Services. So he has seen a lot of this, but the auto industry has been talking about how to make buying a car a digital transaction for almost two decades now. Carvana certainly is a really good reflection of the fact that the, the enthusiasm for going digital and making it easier is going to get rewarded. You know, but at the end of the day, Carvana is a used car dealer. They still sell you the car. They do all the paperwork. It comes to you in your driveway. But I, and, and I'd say Carvana certainly has done many things that are truly digital, but it's still not a native app. It's still going to require, you know, many wet signatures and it is fundamentally leveraging technology, but one of the things that a subscription 
contract offers is the ability to be 100% digital. The way that we navigated these issues in the U.S. market, and it's important to really sort of pull out the U.S. market because the regulatory and compliance issues in terms of selling a car and financing a car and also insuring a car, because all three are part of what you have to do in a subscription. You cannot put a customer out onto the road and not worry about insurance, for example. So those three things tend to be some of the most high compliance regulatory driven environments period and i think that you know it did take a group that had a deep understanding of auto retail and what we've done in the us is we've made a non reg m which is a very technical term but because we offer an open ended subscription that is not longer than 4 months it is also not technically deemed debt so when a customer gets into a subscription they do not show up on their credit report as though they borrowed money. If you borrow money uh, or if you take a traditional term-based lease of greater than four months, so let's say you enter into a 36-month lease, mm-hmm. the amount of that monthly payment plus the cap cost reduction all goes into a basket of you borrowed that much money because that's the term of the obligation or the financial commitment you've entered into. I think we are certainly in a time where what you borrow and how much debt you have really does matter. And one of the great things that you also see in an open-ended or a subscription is a, a contract that does not have an interest rate because technically you're not borrowing money. Not having an interest rate means that you're also not going to be in a, in a contract that's going to cost you more over time potentially. But with the average automobile loan approaching 7 or 8% for a near-prime customer, 10% for a regular sort of person who's got somewhere between a 600 and a 650 FICO score, we're entering that sort of cyclical part of the, the curve where traditional auto finance doesn't really get the job done. And we're starting to see that everywhere. Car loans are down, inventories are up, and it's having a knock-on effect. I think there's a lot of people who are starting to wonder, are EVs all they're cracked up to be? But I think just with Deloitte, In particular, they are focused on large global clients. Let's start with the OEMs and then certainly right below them, they're captive finance companies. Auto finance is an essential part of how the auto economy works. Most people do not pay cash for their car. The average automobile costs about a third of the average consumer's net worth, no matter where you are in the world. So if you think about what are the different strains or different forms of auto finance that really are out there for new cars, it's mostly auto leasing and auto loans. When new cars go up in cost and certainly when interest rates go up, all of those are a little bit impaired, but auto loans hit first. And so what tends to happen is during high interest rate periods, you see auto leasing begin to grow in popularity. And it's not because people are avoiding an interest rate in an auto lease. It's because the interest rate is getting subvened by a captive finance company or a marketing check that comes from the OEM. So new car cyclicality tends to be very predictable around interest rates going up, times getting tough, people pulling back, shifting to used, seeking value, and then auto leasing becoming sort of a magic trick for getting cars sold. And that certainly is what happened in sort of the post-2009, 2010 recession where auto leasing nearly doubled in terms of popularity. And over the last 40 years, we're now at a place where almost 45% of all new cars are leased. That is, you know, a pretty dramatic product adoption curve over the last 25 or 30 years. And so I think that Deloitte really believes that subscriptions are exactly what leasing was 
30, 40 years ago. It is going to be a modern contract that gives people access to mobility without having to go into debt. But one of the coolest parts about a subscription is you can sign up with your credit card. You cannot pay a car loan or a car lease in America today with a credit card because you cannot, by law, pay debt with debt. So this idea that the phone is a sort of you know symbol of convenience in modern life. We all live on our phones and you know, some people even argue we're becoming cyborgs with the, the phone being that first extension. I, I think that as important as the phone is the credit card. The credit card is what unlocks micropayment and the ability to come in and out of all sorts of different expenses we have in life and to simplify things. But a subscription is something that you can pay with a credit card. And because you're not earning into a fixed term financial commitment, doesn't show up as debt, but it also gives us the ability to begin to bundle and simplify the ownership of a car. The ownership of a car is not just, I pay for my car payment. In fact, if you think about mobility as all the natural adjacencies to car ownership, you've got the car, title, tax, registration, insurance, maintenance, repair, fuel, or charging. So all of these things add up to about 14% of the average consumer's gross income. So if you make $100,000 a year, we know you're spending about $1,100, $1,200 a month on mobility, only half of that is going to the car payment. The other half is going to all these other things. And those all tend to be high friction, very, very complex things that most people find frustrating in terms of car ownership. So one of the things we are able to solve in a subscription, and it has sort of really two purposes. One is simplification for the subscriber. We handle maintenance, repair, all of these cars, they come as new cars. You could apply subscriptions to used cars like we did at FAIR, but it means that the subscription provider is going to have to have a maintenance policy that is either probably self-insured or well-funded because obviously as cars get older, and this is true even for electric cars, maintenance costs go up over time. But having all of that being paid for for you as a subscriber does make life easier, not having to worry about title, registration, or any of the paperwork associated with a car, being able to manage all of that on your phone with a very simple you know, sort of signature that you can put on your phone with your finger. All of those things, I think, are part of where people are at in modern life. Simplification matters, but it also opens up the opportunity for the subscription provider. And the subscription providers that Deloitte is going to focus on is really going to be, does Hyundai want to be in the subscription business? Does BMW want to be in the subscription business? Does General Motors want to be in the subscription business? We've developed a tech stack that's probably about $100 million worth of real, you know, sort of mythical man month developer time with an experienced team that's known what they're doing. There's not really anybody who's spent more time, energy, effort trying to figure out subscriptions than George, myself, and our teams, starting from FAIR, then to NextCar, and now at Autonomy. We are big believers in what we're doing. I think that the Deloitte partnership is really about propagating and scaling that technology. But what's emerged for us at Autonomy is really three different businesses. So in the Deloitte business, it is more of a licensing and a SaaS business where we are giving them our tech stack, and then they are taking that and customizing it to each of their customers. Now, you, let's use Hyundai as an example. They're going to then take what we've built Hyundai will pay a licensing fee and some kind of a SaaS revenue stream based on deploying that customized technology to a group of their customers. And this is something that they'll probably sell through their dealer body. So they're not going to have an additional customer acquisition cost. It'll be presented as yet another way to get access to their product.
But what Deloitte's really going to offer Hyundai is the ability to take that exact same product to another country, perhaps, or another jurisdiction where the laws are totally different. In that case, Deloitte will be responsible for the customization of our technology to fit into those different markets and to fit and comply with those different laws because auto finance, auto retail, auto insurance law is complex but mature everywhere around the world. We did not build at Autonomy a global solution because there is no way to do that. You have to then personalize it for a different country or for a different jurisdiction or for a different customer. When Deloitte signs up that type of a customer, mm-hmm. we see a licensing fee, and then we also see a very small SaaS-style fee for every subscriber they deploy. We are largely out of that conversation. They are simply leveraging our tech stack. And whether or not a customer believes that our tech stack is the best out there, there really are not a lot of other subscription engines in the marketplace today. The cost to build and the time to build are really the issue. It would take anybody, even knowing what they're doing, somewhere between three and five years to build what we've built. And just given that we've been through this movie before, we've got a lot of experience. And so there's a lot of pieces to what we've built that are really the byproduct of experience. And so we do represent a real shortcut to market for everybody who's thinking about subscriptions. Subscriptions are certainly talked about in just about every boardroom at every level of the automotive ecosystem. I think the next level of customer they're going to be thinking about is captive finance companies who want to add this as another way to get a customer on the road. Then it's going to be fleet leasing companies like Element or ARI or Donlin or Wheels. You've got these large leasing companies that have existing customers. This is a great way to add a new corporate client or to add individual humans to that account. You've also then got from there car dealers. Car dealers for the first time are starting to really sort of evolve into mobility partners because they have all of the requisite physical ingredients that a customer might want to be able to have flexibility, choice, and the ability to come in and out of some cars, you know. You might not want to have an SUV all year round. You might want to have a convertible in the summer. The the kind of flexibility that a subscription enables is really a good fit for, say, an AutoNation or a Lithia, big car dealer groups that are looking to offer that kind of way to leverage their investment in their infrastructure, that investment in their inventory, all of which are going to give them the, the actual tools to be able to relate to customers in a new and better way. And then you've got a lot of new entrants, folks who just want to get into this business for the first time. Rental car companies are thinking about this. You've also got insurance companies that are looking to replace cars that are damaged. Subscriptions offer a really cool alternative. Almost all rental car companies have dabbled in subscriptions in some way. Again, they don't have the technology necessarily. It is it is a different product. The One of the beautiful things about a subscription is that when a car goes out onto a subscription, it's not sitting idle in a lot like a rental car. Rental car companies sort of are successful or not based on this concept of utilization. How many of those cars are being utilized? What percentage of the time in a subscription business? About 95% of our cars are out on the road. If a car is not out on the road, it's almost always because that car is getting serviced, reconditioned for the next subscriber. And we currently have a wait list of subscribers. So the The second part of our business that has emerged here is this concept of digital servicing. What we're already hearing is that some of these customers that Deloitte is talking to just simply don't want to run the tech stack. They don't want to have their own call center, their own support staff. So running our tech stack 
in a white label fashion for a third party is a different business on top of just licensing and SaaS revenue. It really introduces an entirely new thing that nobody's ever seen called digital servicing. What we do is 100% on your cell phone. And because all we need is a valid driver's license and a credit card, it's very similar to renting a scooter. And the reason we don't need anything more is because we're not evaluating the customer for a car loan. We're just making sure that customer passes all the fraud checks and we can give them the car. We don't want to give somebody who's um, you know, got, for example, a DUI or a reckless driving history a car because it's our car. We just want to make sure the car isn't going to go missing. One of the things we absolutely learned is that we don't think subscriptions are particularly suited for gig economy work or Uber drivers. And that's partly because if you're driving for a rideshare platform, you're going to drive the wheels off the car. <laughs> and one of the really interesting parts about a subscription business is as the owner of the asset, you care if that car is being driven too far because there is a high correlation between mileage and value. And a car depreciates harder if it's driven longer and has more miles on it. It's just that simple. So we've we've really found a much better better cohort of customers with electric vehicles. But again, it doesn't matter. Subscriptions can work just as well for used cars and entry-level used cars. You're just going to have a different delinquency default curve. But all of our customers, like I said, are on credit card. As Deloitte gets into this business, they're going to find plenty of customers that are going to say to us, can we have autonomy, run this for us, and we'll just pay a you know, a, a digital servicing fee, that's going to look something like a flat fee per month per subscriber, plus some percentage of the dollars that are being collected. And then the third business, of course, for us is a direct to consumer or direct to business car share slash subscription type business. And, you know, we're starting to sign up hotels and other property uh, owners, they become our base renter, then they offer it to their customers as really an amenity and they can take the car for the hour, for the day, for the week. We also have you know, some large strategic partnerships, banks, credit unions, and others that are all looking at subscriptions. But the partnership for us with Deloitte is actually pretty wonderful in the sense that to the extent that we want to get into business with some of these other partners in a direct to consumer manner, Deloitte comes in with great validation and the ability to help us customize that platform. We do have a rev share agreement with Deloitte in that case, but it's a big, big validation. Having somebody with that kind of global credibility really choose us and choose subscriptions, we thought was a wonderful partnership. And uh, that was really what's behind the partnership. We're going to be doing some things at CES with a, a bunch of customers, all of whom have been in long dialogue with Deloitte about subscriptions. So you mentioned earlier, you know, as part of all of this is, you know, what a lot of people forget about is, is the insurance side of it, that, that that is, you guys are taking care of the insurance bit of it. And, you know, to, to paint with a, a broad stroke here, you know, insurance companies tend to be by nature risk averse and a lot of them are very, you know, traditional. And you are, you and Autonomy is kind of exploring two uncharted territories with subscriptions and EVs to a certain extent. What sort of has, what's been the reaction from insurance companies? What's been any challenges that you've had getting them on board, so to speak? Well, you know, insurance is going through a transformation as, as it relates to cars becoming more autonomous, more connected, and more electric. The more technology that's in the car, the car is going to be able to avoid certain bad outcomes, right? I think that insurance is also under attack by 
entrepreneurs in general, because entrepreneurs are trying to solve problems. And I think most people recognize that we all either underpay or overpay for insurance. And the only way to know whether or not you're getting a good deal on insurance is to break your car. I think that insurance is all about the law of averages, because up and until now, we haven't had the technology to be connected to the car. And one of the really cool sort of things that have, has occurred in insurance over the last four to five years is mileage-based insurance. This idea that you just pay for what you use. Problem with mileage-based insurance is it doesn't take into account time. M mileage is about just, you know, sort of taking the same law of averages, but applying to how long is the car being driven, not when, where, and how. And what we have, which is a little bit unique, is one, because we own the car, and two, because we're connected to the car. All of our cars right now are Teslas. So we've got a, a 5G fleet API, tells us the latitude, longitude, all of the telematics data. Plus, because we are a native app, we get all of the ZenDrive cloud data from that customer. We have a location-based service element of the experience because if a customer has some kind of a need, whether they're out on the road and they have a flat tire or they have an accident or they are just trying to find out where to take the car for traditional service, we have a map function that's integrated into the app experience that, re that relies on the GPS that's in your phone, not the one that's in your car. So we want to be able to tell you where to go. And that's how native apps like Uber and others become very useful. So when we first built this, we started thinking about, you know, what could we do with insurance? And I tend to think we're probably more of an insure tech company than most people realize. The ability for us to launch usage-based episodic insurance because we have all of that telematics data and we own the car means that for the first time, we can rip apart comp and collision from liability. We can have a garage policy on the car that says if the car is in your driveway and a tree falls on the car, the car is covered. If the car comes in for service and the car, while it's in service, gets some kind of a ding or a scratch or a dent, that's covered. And that is what we call the garage policy. It's very similar to what a rental car company or a car dealer might have on all the cars sitting out in that fleet or on that lot. That is a relatively inexpensive policy because it does not provide any kind of liability coverage. Now, corporately, we're going to have all kinds of additional insurances, but on the fleet itself, Liability insurance is by far the big sticking point for most of these fleet operators. It was a huge issue for us at FAIR. Trying to insure an Uber driver is a nightmare for a whole bunch of reasons. But what we found is that our interim solution at Autonomy was to offer Liberty Mutual month-to-month -month auto insurance. And that, that precluded our customers from having to buy an annual auto insurance policy. So it was a little bit more bite-sized and made access to it a little bit easier. It also became a very good filter to who we gave a car to. We didn't, we, we've never taken the position that we're going to charge you more if you've got bad credit. This is not about lending customers money. So what ends up happening is you just have to be really strict about who you give a car to. And we use that insurability as a filter for who got a car. And as a result, we've had very good outcomes. But where we're headed, this usage-based feature means if you don't drive the car for two weeks because you go on vacation and the car sits, you pay nothing for insurance. But if you come back and you drive the car one inch for that day, you'll get charged $5 or $7 just for the day. Now, 
daily auto insurance at seven to ten dollars is some of the more expensive auto insurance out there. But affordability isn't just about the headline price; it's also about accessibility and the ability to use it when you need it. I mean, Uber is not on a per seat mile basis the cheap way to get from point A to point B, but it sure is convenient and it sure is accessible. And so we're looking at insurance in very much the same way, where if you don't have to pay for insurance for the days you don't drive, and this might be great for say a college student, they're on campus all week, they're not driving their car, they're not gonna have to pay for that auto insurance. Now their auto insurance might be quite expensive if they had to do that because they're young, because they tend to have worse driving records in general, but if they're only gonna drive that car on the weekends, it might cost them 15 or $20 a day. And you see this when you go to the rental car counter, where if, you know you, you can buy all these different levels of insurance, it's sold by the day. Those insurance policies are being done by contract because you're thinking about only using the car for a very, very short period of time. We have a frequency open with our customer. We've got a native app and the ability for the customer to not even have to worry about it, just set it and forget it. Because they have a credit card on file, car doesn't move. You don't pay for insurance. As soon as you come back from vacation, you move the car, you drive it for the day. If you wanted to pay for monthly, you can switch it to always on. Those kinds of options are going to be really the standard, I think, for insurance going forward. And I think it's a really cool time to be innovating in this way because we own the car and we, you know, we have the ability to do that and almost nobody else does. To go back to another one of the partnerships that, that you guys announced this fall, EV Auto, which is a, a EV only retailer, and, and there's several of these that have that have come up throughout the country. In your opinion, what kind of makes sense about this this kind of business model, and and what are you know some of the challenges? Well, I think that what we're starting to see is a lot of people have range anxiety, charging anxiety, brand anxiety. You've got almost a dozen new brands that nobody's ever heard of before. You got new products that nobody's ever driven before, and so. There's going to be an adoption curve around electric vehicles. You know, there's a lot of really interesting things going on right now that people don't understand about electric vehicle hesitancy. I think EV Auto, though, is really trying to build a retail brand around what does it mean to drive an electric vehicle? And you can go there, you can see different brands. They're like an any car store. They're focused on used vehicles. I think it's a very timely idea. I know Alex and the team that started that business I think it's going to grow, be bigger and more popular. The ability to go from one electric vehicle to another is a great, great option. As we started to build autonomy, what we learned is that there's a lot of people who want to drive electric, but they're just not sure that charging a car is going to be a better alternative than going to a gas station. They want to know that range anxiety isn't going to be a real problem for them. So they want to sort of try it before they buy it. You got to have people, physical partners that are prepared to do that kind of work and EV auto is. And so I think this is a partnership for the future. I think that they're going to be a very, very big deal going forward. They're going to build a retail brand that gives customers confidence that you don't have to go all in on one particular brand or product. You can go in on EVs, give it a try and be very nimble about what you use. And if you try something, you don't like it, you can trade it out and go for something else. To, uh, to shift gears a little bit, what do you make of, of kind of developments recently where, where dealers or, or, you know, dealer associations have, have kind of called on federal leaders to scale back or even eliminate some of those EV mandates? You know, what, what's your what's your take on that? And, you know, what, what do you think is driving some of that? You know, I'm, I'm personally a little bit more libertarian. I, I'm not a big fan of regulation as a way of moving a market. It does. I think that California's 
objective of getting to 100% EV only is about as un-American as it gets. I, I just, I, I don't think that's about, you know, free commerce and about true competition. So I'm not a fan. It doesn't mean that it's not happening. I think that the political will of folks like Gavin Newsom and, you know, what we see here in California, which ultimately gets followed by about a dozen or more states, is something that's happened again and again in the past. California has led in terms of air quality through all sorts of emissions controls that at the time were always seen as really punitive to the auto industry. And it didn't mean it didn't happen. So I, I do think that dealers and the auto industry has a vested interest in kicking back on that. And it's very intuitive. I, I you know, I, I, when I heard it, I said, you know, I don't even understand how that's going to work. It just doesn't even sound like that's something that could happen in this country. But nonetheless, you've got about 15 million cars a year being sold in the U.S. And we all know that, you know, peak SAR goes up over 17 and we're heading to 18 or more. So if we're at 15 to 20 million new cars being produced, and you got another 50 million used cars being sold. Let's think about where we're at today. We, we are currently in the U.S. delivering somewhere just under a million and a half electric cars a year. So let's assume that the, the pushback is successful. And instead of getting to 100% by 2035, we get to 50%. And you just sort of parlay that. And, you know, we, we look at, in terms of growth markets for us, DMAs or cities, dominant marketing areas that have a large audience of at least a million customers where they've gone at least over 10% of cars being sold as electric. Once we go into a city, we realize we're in a new state. We have to get compliant with that state. Once we're in that state, then we go into other cities. So Miami was an early adopter. We see about 14% of cars being sold in Miami, electric cars. California already at 26%. So anywhere in California is a great place for us to be. As soon as we figured out Miami, we opened up Tallahassee and all these other cities, Clearwater. And so going into these markets really does take a real strict adherence to the regulatory and compliance issues. To get into Texas, we saw Austin spike. To get into Arizona, we saw Phoenix spike. So in all of these markets, we look for evidence, but the national average is still 2.5% electric. You know, USAA, which I think I've got a long history with, is probably as much a reflection of America as any other customer cohort. USAA members buy 2.1 million cars a year. Only 50,000 of them are electric or even hybrid. So you have a very small percentage of cars being bought by that audience as electric. It's going to grow over time. I think that that's the bigger issue. One of the hard things to do in any business is to change consumer behavior. And it doesn't really matter what the headwinds are right now on electric. There is such a transformational shift occurring. Going from 1.5 million new electric cars to four, to six, to eight million is such a big deal. It will be bigger and more impactful than the original introduction of the car. <laughs> you know, so you you've got, I think, a pretty big market that is moving. And I think as an entrepreneur, we look at that and we say, you know, is are we in the right place at the right time? I think we're all going to be driving electric cars. And that doesn't mean that 100% of our cars are electric. I look at it my driveway, I've got, you know, five cars sitting out there. And, you know, I've got a couple of classics. 
those cars are never going away. They're going to be, they're going to be, you know, cars that I keep. But I, I do think that when I look at, you know, the electric cars in my driveway, those cars are a utility. They, they are easy. They, I mean, they do not require the same kind of maintenance. They're very reliable and they're very safe. And I think that the other modern features that we're starting to see emerging cars tend to be highly correlated with electric. These cars just have more technology. They tend to be more autonomous. Autonomous driving is going to really dislocate the insurance business, for example. You've got so many exciting new products that are coming to market. It's a great time to be a consumer. But I do think that this transformation, the next 10 years, no matter how you slice it, we're going to see electric cars in abundance, and it's going to be at scale. Everybody's coming. Every OEM has said they're going to be an electric car company. I do see all this hesitance right now because, and, you know, I'm, I'm sort of well-known as a longtime friend of Elon's. I think Elon's a lot of things, but he's got a bit of a blind spot about this. He's not an auto finance or leasing expert, and he doesn't care. The reality is he, he very much buys into this first principles concept. And he's always talking about first principles and just understanding how to solve a problem by just understanding the basic truth. He asked me in November of 2018, you know, how could Tesla sell half of the cars in the US? And my answer was, I don't think you can make half the cars in the US. That's, you know, 8 million plus cars. Yeah. I know exactly how many cars per square inch our factory floors can produce. And I know how many square inches of factory floor we're pouring every day. Let me worry about that. How would you do it? And I said, provided that you've got a brand that people love and provided that you got a product that is reliable as anything else, you got to price it below the median price point. He agreed. He said, you know, affordability is key. And what is the median price point? And the moral to the story is I said, it's not a price point when you go above $25,000. It is a monthly payment. Because of the cost of a car, People just don't pay cash for cars. And because you're introducing an entirely new asset class with an electric car, there's enough fear about investing in that. You're going to have a natural tendency to not want to lean in until it's safe. So having a financial offer that means the customer doesn't actually have to take that risk. They can just pay monthly to get into the car. And that's what it all comes down to because we all get car loans. We all are financing these, these assets. You know, I've got four kids and two of them are driving now. And the idea of telling a 21-year-old who's just getting started in life to go into soul-crushing debt to get access to a car so they can get to work is a horrible trade. And it doesn't matter whether that depreciating asset is an ICE vehicle or an electric vehicle, and you believe electric vehicles will depreciate more slowly. It's a bad trade, especially in a market where interest rates now for him are nearly 14, 15%. That is just not a wise idea. So I think that you know, the subscription thing is is a really timely issue. But what Elon did was focused on really delivering on that one promise of affordability. Nobody could have predicted that the Inflation Reduction Act, when it first came along, was going to have a sort of chilling effect on consumer behavior. You know, the Inflation Reduction Act really is misunderstood by most. Only about 1.5%, 15% of consumers are getting to take advantage of this thing on a direct level. Because if you make more than $275,000 a year of household income, you don't qualify for it. It's a federal tax credit. If you don't make $115,000 a year, you don't have $7,500 of federal tax to give back. So 
there is this Goldilocks problem. We're only talking about customers who make between 115 and 275. And it turns out that the average electric car is about 25 to 40% more expensive than its ICE counterpart. So you have to ask who's gonna go out and buy these cars. So consumers in large do not qualify. If they do, then the question is, does the car qualify? And if a car costs more than $55,000, it's probably worth noting that of all of the new entrants from Tesla, Rivian, Lucid, Polestar, Fisker, BYD, VinFast, not one of them, but Tesla qualifies for anything. That's fascinating. Not one of them. Now, in the case of a Tesla with an average price of $50,000, a $7,500 federal tax credit is between 16 and 17% of the cost of the car. And if Elon, like he has, reduces prices by 31.36% over the last 12 months from nearly a $50,000 Model 3 to what you can get just under 40 today, you do that because you're going to get an extra $7,500. All of a sudden, the real out-of-pocket, if that customer qualifies, now approaches $30,000. That is worth the effort just to squeeze a little bit more. The way that Elon sees it is that he showed that he could be profitable way earlier than, say, an Amazon did in their arc, if you will. And he's got a, a build of materials cost that's closer to 30, he's got more margin to give. He'll keep giving it because at the end of the day, one of the things he did last November when he discounted the price, is he also started building cars at full scale without customers. He did not stick to his build to order business plan. He went ahead and built to inventory. Now, at the end of the fourth quarter of last year, he had 45,000 extra cars. There's only five color combinations, for example, of a Model Model 3 and a Model Y. There's only two battery packs, long range and standard range. And there's only two tire and wheel combinations, performance or regular, and there are only five or six different performance accessories you can put on the car. So the moral to the story is you've got about 20 permutations of a Model 3 or a Model Y, and when you've got 40,000 extra, he went from what was a nine-month wait to a four-day wait. Now, if you follow how this sort of rolled through the market, you had in inventory around the country about 50,000 Model 3s on dealer lots. That rolls up to close to $2.5 billion worth of cars. Those cars are being purchased by dealerships like AutoNation and Lithia and PAG and Sonic. And they're buying these cars as used cars and because a customer who didn't want to wait the nine months would go to the used car market, the used Teslas, like a used Rivian R1, or like a used car where you have very constrained production levels, there just wasn't enough of them. Those cars were selling for a 15 to 20% premium. So when we were buying cars in 2022, we bought mostly Tesla Model 3s and Model Ys, those cars went onto our books. We bought them at 50. Those cars were immediately worth close to $60,000. That's just because that's what consumers were willing to pay for that car. AutoNation buys that car for $51,000 or $52,000, arbitrages that, and then makes their money. But all those cars, the 50,000 cars sitting on car dealers' lots around the country, are all financed by the car dealers individually at what they felt was a wholesale level. When Tesla started the discounting, 
and offered this big discount, they started overproducing, delivering cards within four days. And why would a customer who was being told 50, now being told 40, was being told nine months, now being told four days, ever think about the used Tesla again? So all of those cars, and unfortunately, the $100 million worth of cars autonomy on, became worth not 30% less, 40 plus percent less. So we went through a black swan residual shock where all of those cars became worth dramatically less. What was a fifty-eight dollars to $60,000 used Tesla all of a sudden became a thirty-five dollars to $38,000 used Tesla inside of one week. So that is probably one of the biggest shocks. It has made it so unlikely that captive finance companies, banks, lenders, credit unions are going to over allow on these cars because they're just afraid that the asset is unstable. But because Tesla is such a whale in this, in this part of the market, lenders have now applied that same fear factor to every other electric car saying maybe electric cars are not going to hold their value. And of course, nothing happened to these cars that made them worth less other than Elon started discounting. So you know, I, th I think he's one of the smartest people that's ever lived. Does he understand lease law? No. And does he understand how a lease works? He doesn't care. The reality is he's still operating to that first principle of if we make it more affordable by dropping the price, more people will have access. And sure. But again, my theory being 90% of people don't pay cash. It's about the monthly payment. And it's not enough to just drop the price. You got to understand how people think about the overall cost of ownership, mobility. This is, I think, where we live as a subscription business. We've had to figure out how to survive this KG discounting. Discounting is not necessarily a problem. Doing it the way he's done it is really the problem. Yeah, and that, that makes total sense because, you know, I one of my questions for you was going to be, you know, the, you know, I just, just had, saw a report the other day that reflects what you were talking about with you know, EV prices, you know, I think it was IC cars came out and said they dropped, you know, in the past year, 40%, as you mentioned, on the used car side. And, you know, it's like, well, if, if if they're less expensive, that means they're more affordable. But to your point, maybe not so, because the the, the finance companies are saying we're not willing to to take on that risk. Well, you know, there's, there's a um, well-known truth about the car business in that it tends to be very cyclical. Yeah but it's cyclical around interest rates. When interest rates go up, new car sales slow. It's just that simple. So let's look at the last real rate cycle we had. In 2009, we went from interest rates that made financing cars tough for consumers, but it made financing inventory almost impossible for dealers as well. Floor plans were freezing up and interest rates were so high that dealers just started saying, I'm not gonna just buy more cars new car production had to drop from 16 and a half million down to below 10. That is a massive cycle shift and leasing in that sort of rebound nearly doubled in terms of interest with consumers because it was the OEMs who said, we're going to get in there and subvene these contracts and get customers back on the road. But the other really cool sort of game that lessors tend to play is that when production comes down, they know that there's going to be a supply constraint in the market three years because the factory that makes a used car is the new car factory three years ago. Lease returns are the dominant supply source of late model premium and luxury cars in this country. So this idea that we're going to go into a supply constrained future 
means that used car prices are going to go up. And if used car prices go up, there's only four variables in a modern lease. You've got the selling price, the future value of the car, the interest rate, and the term. And the math is basically selling price minus residual multiplied by interest rate divided by term. And so a larger term is going to get your monthly payment down. Up Certainly a lower interest rate is going to keep your payment down. Certainly a discount on the front end will get your payment down. But Everybody in the lease business knows that the number one way to get your monthly payment down is to inflate your residual. The problem is, if you take a view of your residuals being too high, there's a great book written by Tim Higgins. Tim is the uh, the Wall Street Journal beat reporter for Tesla, and you know, it was called The Bet of the Century, and it was really about the fact that Tesla it, you know, was a very unlikely success story on this one factor alone. I was asked by uh, Elon in November of 2018, you know, how to sell half the cars. I said, you know, price it below the median price point. Well, it's not like Elon sat down and knew all four of these variables and I'm not in any way putting him down. He, he came into his FP&A team. He said, get me a, a, you know, a monthly payment below $500 a month. And that is what made it affordable. But he had to write those leases at 74%. And Tesla ultimately had to guarantee that. You know, one of, I, I was an early, early advisor to Tesla. And one of the first things I told him was, don't let your cars go to mar or to uh, auction. You you want to control the secondary market because if your cars go to auction, whatever the auction price is or clearing prices on that car in the auction lane is going to become the securitization price when you go out to borrow money for large lease portfolios. And there was a uh, a moment in time in sort of the uh, you know 2015 timeframe where mm -hmm. Tesla you know hired a guy from V Auto and. When Maury got in there from V Auto, he, he said, you know, I've got about 15,000 cars. I've got to figure out what to do with. And he sold the cream puff cars on Tesla.com. And then he took the adverse selection cars and he sent them to auction. And what, the, what happened is the Model S's and the Model X's that he sold at auction because they were adverse selection, got 55, 56, 57% of original MSRP after three years. That lowered the residual expectation on the Model 3 when it came along. And what it forced Elon to do is guarantee residuals at 74. And they took nearly 20 basis points of risk on that entire product line. And it, it was a good bet because as they got into 2019 and 20, and I've got to give the financial folks at Tesla just amazing props, the way that they've navigated this, every other car company that runs a lease has a lease reserve. When you write your lease, above the residual if you take that one variable you say and you know we owned alg at true car alg is a dominant residual forecasting business for the u.s market about 93 percent of captives and lessors use alg as the number and by law you have to use a third-party guide alg is the dominant one but if alg says the residual is going to be 65 percent after three years and you write the lease at 70 percent, you take that delta between 65 and 70 you put it into what's called a lease reserve account it sits on your balance sheet it's restricted cash it earns interest it looks good but it is not usable and large premium luxury brands like mercedes range rover and others they have lease reserves that are in the billions in some cases tens of billions of dollars in the case of tesla they initially had a lease reserve because they wrote those leases at 74%. Their competitive sort of benchmark would have been 56, 57. So they were really over their skis. And this bet of the century is that that overhang, you know, at, at any given time, Tesla today has nearly $20 billion in capital. Almost half of that would have been restricted cash if you played Tesla by the same set of rules. That restricted cash account was really about 
what's happening to those cars when they come back into the market. And you would have thought to yourself, how could Tesla make a bet at 74% when everybody else was coming in at, and even their cars that were going to auction were getting 50s, you know, high 50s. And the answer to that is the Model 3 was an entirely different product. And it was designed to be an at-scale product, hundreds of thousands of units a year. Now you're seeing it's, it's approaching a million or more. Well, in the early days, again, the factory that makes the used car is the factory three years ago. And so in you know, 2018, 19, 20, 21, all of a sudden we started to see those first cars coming back in 21 and 22. And so there were not enough of these cars in the used car market. It was a very good time to make that bet. Nobody could have, you know, predicted the pandemic and really the production shortages or constraints that it created in 2020 and 21. So you had just fewer cars coming back off of lease. And so if you wanted to buy one of these cars, you just wanted, wasn't enough of them. Their residual values remained very high. Tesla all, also very intelligently got rid of Mori. They moved on and they started doing wholesale auctions with large dealer groups. So AutoNation and Car Carvana and others had a first look at these cars, but the reserve price was the original residual that was set. So 0% of Tesla's cars got disposed of in liquidation at anything below their predicted residual, which was already artificially high. As a result, Tesla took, I think, the very aggressive but very rational position. Since 0% of our cars sell below this number, we no longer have to reserve. And that is, I think, a, a huge, huge departure from what everybody else does in automotive. But as a result, Tesla today keeps the car on their balance sheet at bomb cost. They also take bonus depreciation. They're absolute wizards in terms of how they think about financial depreciation and management of these cars. You know, the idea that, you know, Tesla will not let you buy your car at the end of the lease is driven around wanting to control that secondary market and control those market values. It is all about how those cars get financed. And so, you know, this idea that affordability is just about the headline price of the car doesn't even begin to, to, to touch this issue. It has made it impossible for everybody else to keep up and it's going to get worse. You know, he'll continue to discount those cars. It's creating uncertainty by lenders. And so nobody's willing to take risk. The advance rates are dropping. So, you know, if you're a dealer or a rent-a-car company, you're going to have to put up more haircut equity to buy the cars to put on your lot, to put out into service. It just makes it a harder and harder business to get into. But What's really fascinating to me is watching EV inventory rise at car dealerships. Everybody is now saying, well, maybe it was too much too soon. Maybe we're not ready for EVs. That's not why inventories are rising. Inventories are rising because interest rates are high and nobody wants to borrow the money to buy an expensive car and those cars cost more than others. Guess what else is rising? So is luxury and premium inventory. So as you look across the industry, there's things that are happening that are starting to wobble. The overall revolution doesn't mean that we're going backwards. I just think that it's going to take a little bit longer. And I believe that as much as Elon is high-minded about the electric electrification and the revolution, he single-handedly has put it back five to seven years. He's put a big, big dent in how fast. And you know, at the same time, he is pouring as much factory floor space as he can. He is pouring more factory floor space every day than everyone else combined. The result is that because he's thinking about scale, not margin, 
everybody got used to the fact that Tesla showed it can make profit. His point of view is going to be, how can I make sure that I utilize every factory floor that I have? And his higher order bit is how many humans are driving seat miles in an electric car and how much carbon dioxide are we taking out of the atmosphere and how much are we helping to save the planet, make it more sustainable? Um, he is willing to allow Tesla to go through a bit of a dip in order to get to scale. I don't believe that he is uh, somebody that wakes up in the morning and thinks he's a monopolist, but what he is doing is very, very similar to how a pure monopolist would behave. It just basically is if we're both selling a stack of eggs, you sell them for 50 cents, I, I sell them for 60 cents. I drop my price to 40, you follow to 40. I go to 30, you go to 30. Then finally you're like, I can't do it anymore. I buy all your eggs and then I mark the price back up to a dollar. You know, so I think that there's there's some of that that's coming into play, but when the reset and residual values that I was talking about occurred, mm -hmm. AutoNation had roughly 3,000 cars across its system that went through a residual shock of nearly 40%. And the write down on those cars was tens of millions of dollars. That happened across the industry. There's a lot of people that, they're not just grumpy. He taxed the system. He changed the rules and he didn't do it in a way that worked for everybody. It was a real sort of jarring move that cost a lot of people, including myself, a lot of money. And it, it, it's not healthy for any market to go through that kind of imbalance and that kind of a shock in that short of a period of time. Scott, we'll, we'll leave it there for today, but but thank you. Thank you so much for, for being on the show. This, is, this has been one of our, our more interesting uh, conversations, and I think a lot of people are going to be interested in, in what you have to hear. But again, great to see you and, and great to talk with you as always. Joe, good, good to see you again, and uh, I'll, I'll keep you abreast of all of our progress, but it's going to be another interesting year in EVs for sure, and certainly subscriptions are coming. Absolutely. We will, we will look forward to, to hearing more from you and what's going on at Autonomy and that's going to do it for today's episode of the Auto Remarketing Podcast. My thanks again to Scott Painter and the team at Autonomy. And for our team here at Auto Remarketing, thanks for listening. Supercharge your deal building experience with Accelerate My Deal when connected across AutoTrader and KBB.com listings and dealer.com websites. It helps deliver predictive and personalized experiences for you and your consumers. Book your NADA demo today.